All right, so we are uh, continuing on in our series on family devotion. So what are the things that we need to be devoted to as a church? Um, again, I'll recap for all of us that are new. And if you are feeling a little bit out of place, uh, like this is a new place, I'm going to share with you some st- statistics, just one stat, uh, that we shared with our partners on Monday night. And that is this, since uh, about midway through 2019 until now, 40% of the Grove is brand new. So if you're feeling new, uh, you are in good company. About half, almost half of our church is brand new, um, especially since COVID, like COVID starting. And then a little bit before that, um, we've had like not just turnover, but people moving away, moving in. And so if you're new, you are not alone in the feeling of like just trying to find your rhythm or as somebody said uh, on Monday night, crack the code. And so as you're cracking the code, we want to help with that. And that's why we're doing uh, this series on family devotions. And I'll, again, recap something I said a few weeks ago. Um, long, I don't know, when the, when the Grove first started, we, we created a vision team. And we, that vision team was to come up with our core values and our mission statement and all these types of things. And the question we were asking then in 2015, 2016 was, um, how can we be different than 10,000 other churches? And that's not a bad question. It's just inadequate. Um, And it's inadequate because it might lead you to a place that you really don't want to go. It also might lead you in a place of competition rather than collaboration. And so as we've rethought about this uh, question, the question that we're now asking ourselves and have come up with this new uh, desire to be devoted to these things is not how can we be distinct and different from 10,000 other churches, but instead how can we be the same as the church for the last 2,000 years? So how can we return back to some very foundational roots that we, um, well, quite frankly, the church in America has lost uh, in our pursuit of being different and distinct. And so now I think there's this return, hopefully, I pray, that there's a revival to returning to what the scripture should say we should have been devoted to all along. And he just read it, we've been reading it for the last few weeks out of Acts chapter 2, that we would be devoted to the apostles' teaching. Right, and we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We, we, we'd be devoted to the fellowship. Today, we'd be devoted to the breaking of bread. Now, I will tell you that as I look through these four things that are, that are, that are uh, explicit in Acts 2 about the, what the early church was devoted to, um, they all make sense to me strategically in, in planting a church. I think about, like, if I was going to plant a church, what are the things that we should devote ourselves to? And I think strategically, three of the four are really clear. Like, it makes sense that you'd be devoted to the scriptures and to gospel centrality. It makes sense that you'd be devoted to the fellowship or, or what we've called kind of this partnership together, this committed partnership together for a common goal of the gospel. It makes sense to me that we'd be devoted to the prayers we'll talk about next week. It really just means being God-dependent. But what is this breaking of the bread? It's not so obvious to me. And so I would bet that if you think about it, you will probably assume one thing or another But I want to get past assumption and get an explanation so that we can understand what it is the early church devoted themselves to. And therefore, what we we must be devoted to as well. So this is, again, this is what it means to be devoted and to be a Christian, to demonstrate our love for Jesus. Not just, again, let's go back to this understanding of devotion. It goes beyond what we have energy for. It goes beyond what we've created in our calendar for. It goes beyond what we, what we kind of feel like doing. See, when we talk about devotion, we're talking about holding fast to something. We're talking about committing our lives to a certain rhythm that come 
heck or high water. It doesn't say heck, right? But come heck or high water, we're going to pursue, our, going to pursue these things really no matter what. And what are those things? These are the things that every church must be devoted to, committed to. And if it's every church, then it certainly must include this church. So I would just ask, like, are you devoted to these things beyond feelings, beyond feeling like it, beyond our calendar, beyond our capacity? Or do those things sort of dictate how committed we are to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers? I don't know about you, but I'll bet you your two greatest um, struggles in your own spiritual life, apart from a Sunday gathering, are reading the Bible and praying. I'll bet you those are your two most important things that you'd put on the top of your list of things to pursue this week or today or tomorrow before work. You're, tomorrow's going to be the day. You're really going to get up early and do those two things. Amen. He's, there they are. There it is. We're going to happen. We're going to pursue it. But what happens? We don't feel like it. We get tired. But see, when we're devoted... We push past those types of things. You see, here is what I love about days like today. I didn't know what um, the liturgy was. I didn't write the liturgy today. And one of the things that, that the liturgy talks about is that God is looking for worshipers. Did you know that God is looking for worshipers? That's what it says in John 4, that he is looking for a specific type of worshiper. Jesus says this. Um, he says, true worshipers, that God will, is looking for these worshipers. True worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What a great truth that if you're in this room, you are exactly what God has been seeking. If we're seeking in a devoted matter, in spirit and in truth. So what does this look like, right? If they aren't optional, what does this all look like? How do we do this? Um, at our partnership class, for those that are new, we did this last Saturday. We talked about this grid, like the apostles' teaching doesn't just mean the scriptures, but it also means putting the gospel at the center for all of life, right? Um, like being devoted to the fellowship doesn't just mean getting along with one another or enjoying one another. It also means being committed to one another's spiritual good, in a partnered kind of way, almost a covenanted kind of way. Next week, we'll talk about the prayers, right? It doesn't just mean being devoted to corporate and personal prayer. It means living a life of God dependence. And so today, like the breaking of the bread doesn't just mean the Lord's Supper. It also means, I'm giving away the rest of the sermon right here. It also means worshiping Jesus in all of life. That we would be the kind of people that are worshiping God really no matter where we are, no matter what mountain or valley, we're worshiping him in all of life. So let's look at this, but as we do so, um, we've got this, this framework from Acts 2. Flip with me now, or um, I don't know, if you've got your digital Bible, you can um, click there or whatever it is. Uh, we're going to go to 1 Corinthians 11. Almost every time we do communion, we quote out of 1 Corinthians 11. And we only quote one or two passages, but I want to read the context around it. It's quite a lengthy passage, and it's going to come up on the screen. But my prayer for you is that you would bring your Bible, understand where the things are in the Bible, so that we can come to, back to reference these things that we've learned on Sunday mornings. Here it is, 1 Corinthians eleven, seventeen, And we're going to read all the way to the end of the chapter. Uh, this is what we do, right? 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen. Here it is. How do we understand what the breaking of the bread is? This is a great example right here. 
But in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Would you like Paul to say that about the grove? Ooh, that's rough right there. That's rough. It's, when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Verse 18. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that you are, there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. <clears throat> for there must be frac- uh, factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now this is the part we quote. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, so eat the bread and drink the, of the cup. Oh, yeah. And, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. Pardon me. Verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. For if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together and to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It's a fascinating little passage here at, a, at the church of Corinth. And if you don't know anything about the church of Corinth, it was a mess. Like there was just so many things going on in Corinth that Paul continuously wrote about to correct for them. But Here's what it's going to clarify for us. Three things, right? Is number one, that the breaking of the bread is worship in the corporate assembly. Now, I never thought when we started the Grove, I never thought that I would have to say this next statement. Instead, what you heard me say a lot more of was emphasizing neighborhood groups, the emphasis of neighborhood groups. I would rather, if you're going to pick one, pick a neighborhood group. Okay, and over time, especially through corona, I never thought I would have to say, the corporate assembly is still a part of your vital spiritual health. The corporate assembly, the coming together, the Sunday gathering is still a part, a vital part of your spiritual maturity. I never thought that we would get to that point, but here we are in the Bible Belt and we have to remind one another that the gathering on a Sunday, the gathering on a Sunday morning with the saints to encourage one another to holiness is still as vitally important as it ever has been. It was part of the regular rhythms in the early church. You see it. In verse 18, he says it right there. But uh, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, he goes on to, to tell it, like in verse 20, when you come together, 
It is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He is emphasizing and talking about not just a house gathering, not just a home gathering, not just a day by day they gathered in the homes, but they also came together on a Sunday gathering, a corporate assembly of sorts. This is vital to our spiritual lives. That is absolutely what is obvious in this passage. It's part of the normal rhythms of a Christian. The breaking of the bread, the Lord's Supper, was practiced regularly when the church came together. Now, when we think of breaking of the bread, we think, okay, that's obvious. It's the Lord's Supper. We kind of get that. But really, what are we doing? Have you stopped to think about really what we're doing when we're ingesting bread and juice or wine? Like, what is it that's happening in that moment? Um, I don't want to break down what this isn't. Because uh, for the sake of time, really, I had it in my notes and I was like, I'm cutting all that. Instead, what I want to emphasize what this is, okay? What this is uh, for the believers in a Protestant Christian church these days is that we do a few things. Number one, we proclaim the Lord's death, it says in verse 26. What does it mean to proclaim the Lord's death? It means you're preaching the gospel to yourself and to the body of believers when we do this thing that Jesus ordained on the last night when he was here. And he would do so on a Passover meal. And so when you start to see Jesus doing certain things on festivals, you've got to go back and start to figure out what did that festival originally mean? And I don't want to go back all into Exodus, but there is a, like really a lot of beauty in the, in the piece of literature. I was just talking to Jacob Modell about that this morning. Like this piece of literature is beautiful when you just like piece together all the different pieces of symbolism, including screaming children. Did y'all hear that? <laughs> Holy moly. It's always been a part of God's people, I'm sure. Wow, that's amazing. They're having some good times back there. I want to be back there today. Proclaiming the gospel to one another. That's the first thing. The second two things are the bread and the wine. Look at what, I mean, I'll, I'll unpack this in a minute, but like if you think about the bread, it is a symbol to us that God became man, that he had flesh. Now, as Christians, we think about this pretty often, but really think about it now. And think about it in such a way that it's like, what could have happened if Jesus did not come as a man? What stories would we be telling? We'd be telling the same stories of every other religion that there ever was. But nowhere is there a story of God becoming flesh to die for those that are in the flesh. It is an amazing statement, um, truly, that when Jesus was lifted up on the cross in the flesh, in a body, he hung up on the cross as this access point. And we'll start to see this as the book of Hebrews talks about it. As this access point, if you were sitting there on that mountain that day and you were looking up to heaven, you could not have looked up to heaven without seeing Jesus first. And that's exactly his point. That he would be lifted up, that we'd be drawn to him. That our access point to God the Father would be Jesus on a cross, his death, his resurrection, given for those that actually weren't there, that deserted him that bailed in his deepest, in his hour of deepest need. Even more so does it make his absolute beautiful sacrifice that much greater. It reminds me of when Jesus said to, uh, to Nathan, 
or Nathaniel, when he first meets Nathaniel, and Nathaniel's blown away that he got seen underneath the fig tree, and he's like, dude, greater things are you going to see in me? An amazing little point in John 1. And what does Jesus say? He says, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. It's a great picture of Jacob's ladder. It's the exact same thing that Jacob saw in Genesis 28, that there would be this access point between heaven and earth, and it would be Jesus standing in the middle or hanging in the middle. You see, the bread reminds us that it wasn't just any sort of death. It was the death of Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, on behalf of sinners. But beyond that, there's also the wine. When we partake of the communion elements, we have this symbol. A symbol again in the body of the bread, but a symbol again now in Jesus' blood um, that there would always be, in the Old Testament, there was always a demand for sacrifice. And that demand for sacrifice was always the animal's blood. And so it reminds us again of this exodus. If you remember the story, when the Israelites were headed out of Egypt... Right When the Israelites were headed out of Egypt, what did they do? They slaughtered a spotless lamb. And when they did so, they spread the lamb's blood all over the threshold of their home so that when the curse of the firstborn was being executed all throughout Egypt, right, that would, that would be the symbol to the angel of death that someone who had faith would be living here and they would pass over the Israelites' home and execute the death of the firstborn of all those in Egypt. And so when we have the sprinkling of the blood of the perfect land, not over a, a, a home, but over our hearts, how much more then is this great symbol of forgiveness, of passing over our sin? Hebrews 10 talks about it like this. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. It's a great picture. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, that's the access point, getting into the holy of holies, the place where only the high priest could have gone once a year, the holy places by the blood of Jesus, that's the sacrifice, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that access point, he says, that is, that is through his flesh, the curtain was was, was sliced in two, right, broken, that all of a sudden now we have access to the Holy of Holies. And 20, 21 says, And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean. You see the imagery. You see the imagery of blood sprinkling clean all of us who would believe from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water from Jesus. When we come together around the table, which we'll do with no table, we'll do at the end of our gathering. When we come together, we are proclaiming that God came to save sinners in the flesh and that his blood was the ultimate sacrifice and the only sacrifice that we would ever need to get access to God. That was something that was longed for for thousands of years. And we have gotten accustomed to it for thousands of years. And we hear a message about God coming to earth and we kind of yawn and get bored. But there's so much greater. Have you forgotten, friends, what he has done for you? Have you forgotten how that blood was applied to your life and in your heart? Have you forgotten what your life was like before the encounter with Jesus that changed everything? Let us not forget. For doesn't he say, do this in remembrance of me? 
Of course he does. And that will be a theme as we continue to go through our day. So number one, breaking of the bread definitely means worship in the corporate assembly. But that's not all it meant. If we go back to Acts 2, and you don't need to go there because we're going to be in in 1 Corinthians. But if we go back in our minds to Acts 2, what do we find in 46 and 47? That the breaking of bread is worship, not just in a corporate assembly, but also in our homes. Verse 46 and 47, Acts 2. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking the bread in their homes. Not just the Lord's Supper here, but also what's going on in our homes. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the number day by day those who were being saved. The early church practiced communion or the Lord's Supper in a corporate assembly, but also in their homes regularly. Have you ever uh, practiced the breaking of the bread in this way in your home? You ever done it even in a neighborhood group? It's a little awkward if you start bringing out the elements because it's not something that we're used to. And I would say, yes, there is a formal uh, method of worship through the elements of bread and wine, but it's so much more than that. So much more because day by day, not just in a corporate assembly of a temple, but also in our homes. You see, today, um, I know this because I'm a pastor or a pastor, and anytime I'm in a a corporate place or a a, a family gathering, Thanksgiving, which is coming, Christmas, which is coming, uh, a birthday party, usually everybody goes, Pastor, would you like to ask the blessing? And I go, I am not the only one who has the access to the Father. We all have access to the Father. But I'm not actually asking a blessing. It's actually a little bit of a misnomer uh, in today's culture, right? There's a little bit of a misnomer because God has already blessed the food. He's already called it clean. That's what he said to Peter in Acts 10. Instead, they were, they were what were they doing in Acts 2? They were receiving their food with glad and generous hearts. So yes, this means being intentional missionally with the breaking of the bread, with hospitality and bringing people into your homes and making sure you intentionally have lunch with people that are not believers and believers to encourage them in the faith, to bring them in the faith. It absolutely believes that. It it actually means that. But let me emphasize another element to this. And I've never been more um, uh, mindful of it than my two most recent experiences with steak. Um, so on Friday night, we got together as the men in our church, and we had steaks and stogies over at the Ortiz's, and it was great, and scripture, don't leave out the scripture. Um, and it was great, David Holt did a good job of leading us in a devotional. But before the devotional, I ate my steak that I paid out of my own allowance. I don't know how you do your budget at your house, but my wife gives me allowance to live on, and that's all I get. I can't have any more than that, okay? So I used my own allowance And I went and bought a $22 steak, which I've never done before in my life on purpose. But I went to HEB and I picked that baby out. I was like, that's going to be good. And I just, my mouth watered all over it all day long. And then I put it on the grill and I marinated. I put salt, pepper, a little olive oil, a little butter, put it on the grill. And I was like, all right, I've left my meat thermometer at home. Now, some of you are like, why are you even using a meat thermometer? You need to come over and learn how to cook. And I would agree. Especially after my, my, my little adventure on Friday night. Because in my paranoia of making sure it was going to be awesome, man, I overcooked that thing. 
I know, right? And I just chewed on $22. I might as well have just put the money in my mouth and saved myself the experience because it tasted about the same. And I had no one to blame except me. Now, juxtapose that with my previous experience. And this is what got me really excited about me being able to do this, is that I went to Dallas not too long ago with, uh, uh, for a training with Acts 29, the network that we're a part of. And it was, uh, we, we sat together, and the last night is always this night where we're kind of celebrating what God's been doing in our churches and in our lives. And um, on Acts 29 dime, so thank you, The Grove, and nor did I pay out of this of my own allowance, they took us to Del Frisco's. And I don't know if you've ever been to Del Frisco's, but I asked for a steak medium rare. And that's the way I like it, not the way I had it the other night. And it melted in my mouth. Like the steak just melted, and I thought I could duplicate that ignorantly. But nonetheless, it melted in my mouth. And I got done, and I just was, you ever seen What About Bob? I know Wiley has. He might be the only person. But you ever get that, that, that moment in What About Bob when he's eating that corn and he's going, mmm, oh, mmm. Is this, is, this, is this hand shucked? Is this hand shucked corn? I felt like that at Del Frisco's that night. To the point where um, it may have been a little bit sinful, and here's why. There was a moment where I was like, how, this steak is so good. How do you do this? Am I worshiping the chef? Am I worshiping the taste? Because I think when, breaking, when we think about breaking the bread in our homes, I think, about, I think about worshiping Jesus, doing that in remembrance of Jesus, so that no matter whether it's overcooked or perfectly cooked, when I'm thanking God prior to my meal, I'm not asking a blessing. Instead, what I've learned over time to do is bow my head and open my eyes. Last night, we went to dinner with some friends, and they didn't ask me to pray, praise the Lord. They prayed. Uh, the gentleman prayed, and I was like, yes, praise the Lord, awesome. So while he's praying, I have my eyes open, and I'm just taking note of the variety of colors that are on my plate. And I actually don't know what he prayed. I just found myself going, this cauliflower looks delicious. I've never said that before in my life. These Brussels sprouts, they actually smell kind of good. Never said that before in my life. And I just found myself thanking God for the kind of God that would so creatively put this kind of variety on my plate for this sinner to enjoy. To just enjoy all that he has provided and it be a great picture of the variety of textures and flavors for my life to be able to just take that in as well. Even the things that I didn't think I was going to prefer, like Brussels sprouts. I've never, I don't pay for Brussels sprouts. You don't do that. <laughs> but nonetheless, like I, we did, right? And so like there was so much beauty on the plate that when my eyes were open praying, my gratitude for God absolutely blew up exponentially. And not only with my eyes open, but with my nostrils open, now I'm just taking in the aromas. Like, Lord, why would you let humans discover this kind of mix of spices and aroma and temperature and time so that we sinners would enjoy you for all of eternity? It's a beautiful picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb when there's going to be a party in heaven with vats of God's grace all there for us to enjoy forever. What a great picture. If we break the bread like that, what kind of people would know Jesus? If we went to lunch and we just made a fool of ourselves giving God thanks over what he's provided for us, not just on our plate, but in our lives, wouldn't people be intrigued, the kind of God that that is? We didn't just go around complaining about every circumstance, but we just saw the beauty 
of what he's prepared for us. They broke their bread in their homes, not just in the corporate assembly. You see, as Christians, we know the God who created all things and we worship the God who could mercifully, or who does give us mercifully, give these things to us to enjoy. And it is a good and beautiful picture of the character of God. You see, the early church had a habit, again, of breaking their bread in their homes. And when they did so, they did so with glad and generous hearts, it says. Generous in Acts 2. You ever thought about receiving something with a generous heart? I have a lot this week. And I had to do a deep dive on what that word really meant. It's really like the only time it's used in the New Testament, so it's really hard to figure out. But it's best known, really, or best interpreted with single purpose. That they received their food. You wouldn't think that that would be such a big deal. That receiving food from God would be a way that we worship our king. That they did so with joyful, glad, and single-purposed hearts to worship their provider. Now, I don't know about you, but when um, our partner from India, Beak, comes here, and um, one of the first places I took him was H-E-B. Okay, so when you're in India... Um, there's no, there's no like H-E-B. I don't know if you knew this. Um, and so when we go where we go in India, no one's wearing even shoes. So like the idea of an air-conditioned supermarket is like so far, it's like 12 steps beyond what they're thinking about as far as a marketplace is concerned. So when he came here, and it's the first time he ever been on a plane, one of the first places I took him, I walked him into H-E-B, and I go, Beak, what do you think? And he goes, oh. He just looked, and he got done. We walked all the way through it, and he got done. He goes, Pastor. I said, yes. He goes, Life is very easy here. And I said, how dare you, Beak? I'm offended that you would say that about our lives because I think it's quite a chore to go to the grocery store. But in his mind, in his mind, it's so easy here. He would come out. He would help me mow my yard. It's a self-propelled mower. It's a gas weed eater. That dude's out there with, like, clippers, hand clippers, doing what he needs to do on the field that's been provided for him. No wonder he would come here and go, man, this life is so easy here. But when you think about what's been put on our plate, we think about all the things that God has provided in order for humans to truly take what he has provided and put it on our plate. We could take it for granted and just ease right back, uh, right past it. This is kind of a weird sermon to just go, Like, remember what's on your plate and remember how good God is? And remember, like, truly do this in remembrance of him. That we break the bread in corporate assembly. That we break the bread. That we would do this in remembrance of him in our homes. Which also leads us to our final point. Not just a single purpose of worshiping Jesus around uh, our tables, but also in all of life. The breaking of the bread is worship in all of life. You see, we went to 1 Corinthians 11, and we talked about how they came together. And that Paul could not, uh, 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 he was condemning them, really. He would not commend them, because they were coming together in an unworthy manner of the death of Jesus. And you might think to yourself, well, what does that look like? I'm glad you asked. Let me read the little bit here of 18 through 22, and then I'm going to skip over to 27. Let me just reread it. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
Look at what it looks like for us to not put a single purpose on worshiping Jesus. I know you've never been in a place on a Sunday gathering or in a corporate assembly or in a local body of believers where you would have divisions among you. I know that was never happened for you. That there would be divisions among you. Remember, he is not okay with this church right now. That there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, meaning, man, I really love Josue's preaching. When's he going to plant a church? I'll go with Josue. Man, I really love Lance's preaching. I'm never leaving this place. Man, I really love Aaron's preaching. When's he going to plant a church? I'll go with him. I really love Cephas or Paul or Apollos. That's all in the background here of factions of playing favorites and not looking past the personality, but to the person of Jesus that that person represents. Not that that would ever happen in the American church. We'd be so caught up in personality. We go on in Paul. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's just a game. For in the eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry and another gets drunk. They take the wine and they down it. They go, oh man, all God be the glory. Or all, 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 yeah, all God be the glory. That's what's going on in the early church. No wonder he says, what? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Don't do this publicly. You wouldn't do this privately. What are you doing out here in public? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? This is a game of the haves and the haves not, have nots. The rich people would come in early. They would feast on whatever potluck was there that day, leaving the poor out. So by the time the poor would get there a little bit later, there'd be nothing for them to eat. Nothing really to be thankful for. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then he goes on to verse 27. And this is the part I think we usually get fixated on when we start doing communion. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And we go, oh man. And we've been taught this. That must mean you better confess and repent of all of your sins. As if we are wise enough or aware enough of all of our sins in that moment. And so you better repent of all the sins that you have before you come to the table or else God might kill you. Have you not heard a, a similar introduction into the Lord's Supper? I have. That's not what he says. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. What do the cup and the bread actually reference? The work, the atoning work of Jesus and what does that actually implicate or imply? It means we need deep levels of forgiveness. It reminds us that we must have deep levels of forgiveness because we have been forgiven greatly. So then we must also forgive others in that way. And look at what it says. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, the body, not just the body of Jesus, but the body of Christ, as in the church body. How is it that we are treating one another in private? Because it matters on how we're going to worship in public. So it's not just coming together and, and partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's not just remembering Jesus when we eat a meal and we're being hospitable. It's our relationships. It's everything. And that matters, and that absolutely fuels how we worship Jesus around the table. 
And he goes on. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. What a fascinating statement. And it's no wonder that there was great fear and awe in the early church. And all of this, again, simply points to one main reality. We do not just participate in the Lord's Supper in the breaking of the bread, nor just showing gratitude and hospitality to others, but we do this in remembrance of me in all of life, in our relationships with one another. Probably first and foremost, but also with our relationship with the Lord. It means we live our entire lives in remembrance or in honor or in memorial to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And that is what this passage alludes to, that you cannot participate well in the breaking of the bread in the corporate assembly and pretend to honor Jesus publicly when we do not honor him privately. Great example of this is Ananias and Sapphira. You know this story in Acts chapter 5? Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira, they walk into the corporate assembly of the apostles. They had just got done selling their property, if you remember this. I mean, this is before the church really, really, like, gets off uh, the ground. Ananias and Sapphira walk in. They just sold this piece of property. And um, if you just flip over in Acts 2, if you're there, what you find is they, they sold it for a certain amount. You don't really know what it is. But when they go in, it says that they held some back for themselves. Now, that's not the sin. So they kept back for themselves in verse 2. In verse 3, they kept back for yourselves part of the proceeds. The problem was they went into the, to, to the assembly with the apostles with Peter, and they said, all right, I just sold our property for $100,000. And they go, we want to so bless the church. Here is $100,000. When all the while they knew they sold it for one fifty. So they kept that 50 for themselves and presented it like it was everything they had. They pretended to be more generous, more holy, uh, more put together amongst the assembly than they really were. If you read that passage, it's, it's a dire warning for all of us. I always wonder, like, what is Ananias and Sapphira doing in the Bible? Well, just at the beginning of starting a new community of a new people, he puts this warning down for all of us. Ananias goes in, and he lies to Peter, and Peter knows it, and he says, why have you lied not just to man but to God? And what happens? He drops dead in an instant because he lied. He pretended to be holier than he was. His private life wasn't matching his public life. And then Sapphira comes in about three hours later, and they go, hey, hey, um, your husband's not here right now, but hey, just tell me a little bit about the, the property that you sold. Did you sell it for 100 Yeah, yeah, we sold it for 100 Oh, okay. And she drops dead right away. And it's no wonder that worship, being single-purposed on the worship of Jesus, it's not the holding back that was the sin. It was the pretending to be better than they were that was the sin. And, and, and we, we, we encounter this. And so I think about like the breaking of the bread and remembering Jesus in all of life, it also means in the things that we're holding back from him. The things that we're, we're hiding away from him. The things that we don't want him to touch, the, 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 the topics that we're afraid of, the people that we don't want to forgive, the dollar amount that you're calling me to give to a missionary, whatever it is that we're holding back for ourselves because we don't fully trust him to be provider. You see, at the end of that story, it's a great, I think it's a great thing for us to remember. In verse 11, it says, And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who have heard these things. 
I, I'm not afraid of, of God, like, making me drop dead right now. If he chooses to do that, like, praise God and amen, I suppose. I'll miss my kids and my wife, of course. <laughs> Don't take that the way it wasn't said. But truly, like, if he chooses to do that, like, that'll be in his, his, his pro- I'm not afraid of that, but I do think he could do that. He could do that for anyone that doesn't wholeheartedly, truly worship him in spirit and in truth. So it's, it's the call of every Christian. It's the call of every Christian to be motivated by his grace, not by duty. To be motivated by grace to do all of life in remembrance of him. So I would ask as we finish, what are you holding back? How are you compartmentalizing your worship of Jesus? Is your spiritual life like a, like, a, like a plate of spaghetti or is it like waffles? I had both this week. The waffles you fill up one compartment at a time, right? And the syrup doesn't flow everywhere if you just fill it up one little compartment at a time. And a lot of us fill up our lives one little compartment at a time with God's grace. And that is not the way God intended us to live. He wants us to be a plate of spaghetti with everything running everything. And, and God's grace is just saturating our entire lives. You can't separate the sauce from the noodle. It's everywhere. Sorry, breaking of the bread had me thinking about steak and waffles and pasta. But nonetheless, that is God's call for us to live an integrated life. That God's grace would not be compartmentalized and, and our life then be kept back. From Jesus. So again, I ask, is your life lived in remembrance of Jesus? Are your finances organized in remembrance of Jesus? If we're to do all things in remembrance of Jesus, how is your marriage? Is it done in remembrance of Jesus? Is your parenting done in remembrance of Jesus? How about your working? How about your playing? How about your social media? How about your opinions? How about the, the, the idea of you needing to forgive someone? Is it done in remembrance of how God has forgiven you? How about your God dependence? Is it done? Or are you self-dependent in remembrance of Jesus? Friends, let us devote ourselves to the breaking of the bread and in this way do all things in remembrance of what Jesus has done. And we're going to celebrate that now in just a moment as we do communion of the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Jesus. Let me pray for us and then we'll go get our kids. Father in heaven, thank you for all that you do, man, just as like I'm, I'm overwhelmed at the texture and the color and the flavor of food, I'm also overwhelmed at the texture and the flavor and the color of your son Jesus, that you just be so, uh, so textured, so layered in your understanding, so beautiful and gracious and generous in your gifts to us. That just like Moses gave the people of Israel manna from heaven. You came down as the true and better bread from heaven to feed your people. And I pray that we would feast on you like you say to do. I pray that we would continue to just do all things in remembrance of what you've done for us. And so we return to where we started, Lord, in this day that you are looking for true worshipers, those that would truly devote themselves to the worshiping of Jesus in all of life, to following your son Jesus in all of life. And so as we eat today, as we go to lunch today, whatever it is, 
I pray that we would just make ourselves a fool, trying to find different ways that we can have hearts that are full, that are glad, and that are singly purposed on the worshiping of Jesus. That we would not fall in love with food or drink, but we fall in love with the giver of food and drink. So maybe we're a Christian in here and this is all something that's pretty familiar, or maybe we're a new Christian in here and this is all pretty new, or maybe we're not a Christian in here and this just sounds weird. That we feast on the body and blood of our Savior. Wherever we are, Lord, we know that you're going to meet us, and we pray, Lord, that you will not just meet us, but carry us. Help us walk in these truths. Help us believe these truths deeper. May we honor and worship you as we fumble along the way, following you. Lord, give us the grace that we need to continue to pursue you beyond what we feel like, beyond what our calendars say, but may we pursue you in all of life, And in all things, we love you. And we ask, God, that you would help us do this with the power that is given by your spirit and with the forgiveness that fuels our lives by your son, Jesus. Amen.